Good morning. Here we are on Latinx in the Inland Empire. This morning, we're going to speak with Alexis Paul Monroy, who is currently a cultural studies doctoral student at Claremont Graduate University. He is a resident of National City, California. His work at CGU concentrates on the sights, sounds, and transformational power of the street. As a lowrider, his goal is to spread a deeper consciousness and appreciation for street culture while amplifying the often unheard voices which fill them. Alexis received his Bachelor of Arts in Sociology from San Diego State University and a Master of Arts in Cultural Studies from Claremont Graduate University. Good morning, Alexis. Good morning, Eric. Thank you for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure. Yeah, I got to know you in class um, last year in Dr. Pobleta's class, and um, I was really interested in your um, burgoing master's scholarship and research, and I know you've worked really hard on publishing scholarship around lowrider culture. Um, so tell us, Alexis, what is lowrider culture? Oh, I mean, well... In its simplest form, I, I mean, you can you can think about it as the car culture, right? It's a it's a form of American car culture, but with a with a Latinx or, or Chicanx flair. Um, it's in the, it's a it's a culture that takes things that are that are forgotten or thrown away, re, you know, revamps it, brings new life into it, um, and so it encompasses everything. It encompasses you know the religious aspects of you know a Mexican American life you know, with the combination of Mesoamerican origins, you know, it's, it's a, it's a culture that resists norms, you know, and, and pushes back against, uh, you know, white authority, mm -hmm. but it's a, but it's a vibrant life. It's, it's full of color and, and amusement and wonderment. That, that's how I see it. Oh, most definitely. So let's talk about a little bit of the history of it. And then let's take it back to the context of national city lowrider culture today. Um, so, did lowrider culture begin in SoCal in the '40s, or, or, or how did it begin? Where, where? Talk. I think. Us. Yeah, I think. The, I mean, the the major kind of conception of lowriding, it gets its its roots in Southern California car culture post kind of World War II. Um, what happens is, you know, you have. In general, you, the, the car in American culture has represented upward mobility, um, expansion, forward progress, right? It's that American dream. Mm -hmm. And for, you know, immigrants as well, for Mexican-Americans, you know, that coming coming to this land or, or already part of this land is, of the United States, you know, adopt that as well. But they bring their flair and their expertise with them. So... You know, it, it, I, it's kind of ironic. It's like the war, you know, World War Two provided the skill set necessary for these cars to be built. Right. You take these instruments of war and you make it into a different weapon. Right. Mm -hmm. of, of identity, of pushback, you know, pushing back against uh, norms of invisibility. So, you know, after, after the servicemen, you know, left World War Two, they, they're they have the skill set of working on the on World War II bombers, you know, the auto pool. And, you know, fortunately, they couldn't afford the cars coming off the assembly lines of Detroit. You know, so what do they do is like, OK, well, we're going to take these old cars, these these forgotten relics, and we're going to, you know, revive and, and bring a new identity to them. So they start, you know, how, you know, backward engineering, you know, backyard engineering is pretty much what I call it. They kind of how can we, you know, get these cars running? It's not good just to have a car that runs. We want something with style and flair. And so they start experimenting and um, it's in, in starting to realize that, you know, if you drop the cars down, there's a different attitude. There's a different uh, mobility of the car. And then, of course, you know, the, the paint jobs was there a way of kind of showing their identity, you know, whether they're marked with Mesoamerican iconography um, to religious elements or even a Mexican-American war icons like, you know, uh, you know, Emilia Zapata or Pancho Villa. It was, a, it was a canvas for them to express their, their identity. And so, yeah, there, there is this kind of connotation that it, it comes from Southern California, but I mean, it has its roots in, in so many different places, whether it be 
um, the American ideology, you know, ideology of, of the automobile to, you know, its roots in Mexico with the caballeros who used to adorn their saddles with, you know, silver um, engravings and parade the streets. These, these are relics that are, that are carried on and moved on in different forms through culture. Mm -hmm. Most definitely. I really liked how you spoke a lot about um, the significance and uh, contribution by Mexican Americans and the Chicano culture. Um, As someone who lives in the Inland Empire, um, there's many, many um, low rider communities. um, And one thing I've learned is that uh, that one of their taglines is low and slow. Um, and I wanted to ask you, Alexis, um, let's unpack that. I really like um, that. I think there's a lot to say there that touches on um, a lot of communities that we've spoken about um, and, and, and what they're trying to do when they're when they're doing that low and slow. Yes, I mean I mean low and slow in its form is a it's performance, right? It's a performance of being seen. So when you you know first when they when they dropped the car they 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 saw that that it became an exaggerated just the the optics of it, right? So when someone lowers their car, it creates a new lines, it creates length of the car, the vehicle, you can see different aspect of it. But it's an attitude. It's it's a, a form of being seen. So when you're doing that low and slow, it's this. You know, how do we elongate this time? How do we elongate this act of low riding? Mm-hmm. You know, so and it's it, and it's a contrast, right? So in you know Southern mm-hmm. California, you kind of had two scenes. You had the low rider scene, and you had the hot rod scene, right? So predominantly, the hot rod scene is is a is an Anglo kind of culture and you know, that wants to go fast, right? I just we want to go as quickly as possible. It's all about speed. Where the the low rider flips that access, right? It's mm-hmm. not about going fast or going to point A to point B. It's how do we elongate this this you know this this performance? I want to be seen, and you know, and it comes to a lot of different things. It, you know, it comes from being in a culture where you know, especially in Los Angeles or even you know where I'm from in San Diego, you know, during the 40s and 50s is that invisibility right where you know we're we're supposed to be not seen no you know it's that survival tactic right don't don't be seen don't be heard that's how you're gonna get you know get to the next day where low riding says no you know you can't i'm not invisible anymore you're gonna have to see me you're gonna have to deal with my bravado and i'm gonna be here and i'm gonna be occupying space and time so that low riding you know low and slow is is that occupation it's that retaking or reclaiming of space and time so you know it's 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 more than it's actions, you know. I think that's what some that's what kind of dragged me into researching low riding. It's like you grow up around this aesthetic and you grow around this culture, and you enjoy it, you know, as a youth. And then when you get to kind of where I'm at now, and you start saying, well, what is it really doing? You know, what does low riding do? Why is it such a, you know, a, a stigma, a criminalization. Why is it an act of, you know, a criminal act in some aspects, right? Because it's outlawed in a lot of a lot of uh, cities and throughout California. Mm-hmm. You know, and you want to know why? What is it doing to authority? And I think the biggest thing is just it's it's saying that we're here and we're not going anywhere. You're going to see me. You're going to have to deal with me. And I think that's the big thing. It's it's a, a disruptor of authority and of hegemony. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like. Um, as someone who appreciates low ride culture um, and uh, went to Berkeley during the 1990s, I was really, you know, informed, right? Like most of us in the 90s by like the West Coast hip hop, right? G-Funk culture, right? Dre, Snoop Dogg, how they kind of featured that as part of um, kind of a music kind of vibe too. Um, and, and the relevance of street culture, right. For a lot of us who, who want to be seen. And yeah. You know, and I think the, I think the big thing too, as well is, you know, that low running is not all just a Mexican American creation, right. Mm-hmm. It, you know, mm-hmm. it has its roots there, but it also expanded way beyond the barrio. Right. And I think too, we have to come to the realization is that, 
you know, we, you know, we as when I say we, me, myself, as you know, as Mexican American, Chicano, that we occupy the same places and you know spaces as our, you know, our Black and African American brothers. Like mm-hmm. we have the same, you know, obstacles, and so a lot of things that you know that draws to these, to the, you know, to low riding. Is because we occupy the same space and place, you know, mm-hmm. that we're we're more connected than you know that that some people don't you know want to um, express, and I think that that's where you see the adoption and collaboration, if you will, mm-hmm. of of you know input, and I think that's a big thing too with with hip hop. It's like you know, hip hop, car culture, even car culture in general, right? Music has always been synonymous with car culture, especially within Southern California, right? We have these you know, these thorough ways that we can drive and there's always a soundtrack to this movement. And I think that's why it's, there's always this combination, right? So whether we see Easy e or, you know, mm-hmm. especially, you know, Ice Cube in these 63 and 64 and pause, because, you know, we're in, we're inhabiting the same place and time. Yeah. And that's, it's such a fascinating cultural studies um, project um, because you're really looking at this intersection of, of human lives, right? But at the power dynamics, right? At, at how people are displaced, but also recasting um, their culture and rebranding, right? Recreating, completely reimagining the street, reimagining um, cruising, and reimagining um, slow and slow. Um, I think it's a really a fascinating example. And that's why I really wanted to talk to you on our podcast, Alexis, because I feel like there's so much um, that's accessible to your research and scholarship. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I, I try to look at things like for, for my instance, like, you know, when I, when I look at small practical things that we do every day, so like, for me, low riding was an everyday kind of staple. It was something we saw on the weekends. And you say, well, what's amazing about this? But also, why is it being such a tap? Like, why is it being attacked by authority? Why is it criminalized? You know, when I look at hip hop, you know, or even like that, it's like, well, why was it so so demonized? Right? Why do we why do we look at this musical, you know, expression and say it's bad for society? Is it because it's critiquing society? Is it critiquing authority? What is it actually doing? Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, in the street cultures, it definitely, you start seeing this dynamic, right? Whether it's from fashion to music to cars, um, you know, or even gang culture, if you want to look at it. Like, why are these developing cultures, what are they doing and how are they interacting with societal norms and authority? Uh, and for me, I think for, you know, low riding in general, for me, I saw it as a, a way of pushing back. Mm-hmm. You know, of of reclaiming, especially with the tensions in regards to, you know, Southern California mm-hmm. and, you know, Mexican-American and settler kind of narratives. It's like, you know, the erasure of history. And I see it through, you know, low riding. It's like, no, not only do we reclaim land, we use the cars, the canvases to document history that's been erased. Right. It's like, well, how can I look at a an airbrush mural and learn more history on a car? than I did in, you know, in high school about Mexican-American contributions in the United States to different histories that that isn't covered. And it's like, you know, you, you use every modem or medium that you have to display this history. And I think that's the kind of the big thing for me was, you know, in my field of study, like what I try to do is what are things that I can do to help, you know, uh, amplify voices that are forgotten or overlooked? And I think a lot of times those are you know, the voices of the most vulnerable communities, you know, and that tends to be uh, communities of color. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I love that because what you're doing is your, your scholarship makes a lot of sense using this metaphor, right? Looking at car culture as an extension, right? Of Mexican-American or Chicano uh, life in Southern California. And, and that, like you said, why when I Google, for example, Alexis lowriders, the first question is, right, are lowriders illegal? Yeah. And you said it, right? This idea of policing or dispossessing certain bodies from street culture. Um, 
from cruising. Um, as someone who went to high school in San Diego, <clears throat> I'm very aware of the dynamics that happen um, between, let's say, the coastal communities of San Diego and the eastern communities of San Diego and how they're very, very different places um, based on histories of humans who are dispossessed, right? Um, yeah, you know, I, I do a lot of, you know, I, I, I talk about places. For me, it's always been places. Like, why is, for me, you know, growing up in, you know, in, in the South Bay of San Diego, right, so which is predominantly Mexican-American, you know, we have Filipino and African-American communities. But, we, you know, we have this place in it's Barrio Logan, it's Chicano Park. And you start seeing, like, throughout history, we keep getting pushed or cut with expansion of, you know, upward mobility of these, of this, you know, ideology of American exceptionalism. And, you know, and so we start seeing how do we uh, maneuver in these, you know, in this new age? And for me, it's like, you know, you start looking at these aspects. Why are we criminalized? And that's the big thing. And I think when I started looking at low riding, especially within San Diego, um, there's a predominantly big strip. It's called Highland in National City. And that's mm -hmm. kind of like similar to Whittier here for LA, is that this is the place where majority of lowriders congregate and cruise. Got it. But you, but you start seeing like, well, why, you know, when I grew up, I got the tail end of it. And then it started getting where they shut it down, right? So it was kind of like, you can get your car impounded. You can go up to, you can be sentenced to jail for six months to lowriding. So it was always this, you know, this thing, right? When lowriders take that actual action, right? When they go to the street, even to today, that's why I still call it an outlaw movement is that there's not a guarantee you come back with your car. Mm -hmm. you know, you're going to get ticketed. You can get pulled over. You can lose your car. Mm -hmm. So you're always taking that risk and continuing this culture or continuing this, this lineage of, uh, of protest. And so, you know, back in the day, you know, in the seventies, it was like, I was reading in newspapers and news clippings, you know, that from San Diego Union Tribune is that on any given weekend, you can have 2000 lowriders occupy a five mile strip in National City. And it's like what it really tells you is are they afraid of low riders because of the the disturbance they're making with the disruption of traffic? Or are they really, you know, the white authority, are they really more concerned about that that many brown bodies occupying the street? Mm -hmm. Right? That mm -hmm. that coalition of mobility, right? I think that's really what it starts coming at. Is when you have that much power in, in in mobilizing people onto a you know onto a single avenue, I think it, it creates fear, right? And I think that's where the biggest thing is, and it's it's a misconception. It's mm -hmm. it's like, you know, this is this community's joy, right? This is the you know that that you know thoroughway, you know that highway was our socolo, right? This is where we used to come down to our you know to to our meeting place. And I think those are carrying ons from our traditions in the past. I think that's really what, you know, what low riding kind of does. It, it carries on these lineages that are, that are chipped away through, um, through laws and, th and through, you know, uh, pressures from authority. Most definitely. I, I see low riders as like living exhibits, right? And um, for our audience, I'm looking at a map of Barrio Logan in San Diego and I don't know if a lot of people know um, where Barrio Logan is, um, but for all of us who are in San Diego, do you want to kind of paint a little picture of why, um, even if it's on the water, um, that it it is industrial? Yes. What, I is, mean, what does it mean to be a Chicano park in San Diego? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, Barrio Logan in general holds a spot, right? I think prior to the five freeway and the Coronado bridge, it was like the second largest, uh, Mexican American enclave, right. In Southern California. That's, and that's big, right. For San Diego saying that then, then California. So what ends up happening is, you know, the five freeway comes through for expansion, right. For upper, you know, and this is that whole thing that always happens, right. The United States needs to be improving progress, but they choose certain neighborhoods to cut. So of course, Barrio Logan was one of those neighborhoods that got cut by the five freeway. And then later on, they created a bridge 
that connects downtown San Diego to Coronado Island, which is in the, you know, which is in San Diego Bay and cuts again, you know, this community. Right. And, you know, you, and when I say cut, I mean, you're losing, you know, I think it was like up to 2000 houses and businesses that were, you know, Mexican owned. Mm-hmm. So when you're losing that many houses and, and you know, people in general, it, it creates this kind of rift in the community. It's like, man, you know what, you know, we found our place and even now we don't have a spot. Right. Mm-hmm. So we're always in this movement of progress. And, I, and another thing, too, is, you know, they start moving residential zoning. So it becomes this mixed mixed residential zoning, which allows, you know, NASCO and U.S., you know, the U.S. Navy has their shipyards right there. Right. So before previous, you know, you know, and this is, you know, prior to I think the 40s, 50s, you know, the community had access to the water. Well, that gets blocked. You know, mm-hmm. you can't mm-hmm. have those luxuries. Um, and then also, too, we need your zoning for, you know, the, I think they had a like shipbuilding. There was a kind of mm-hmm. like aluminum siding, metal working there. So mm-hmm. constantly, you know, Barrio Logan in general has one of the worst air qualities in San Diego, right? And I think, that, you know, and there's studies showing, about, you know, high spikes in asthma and, and other kinds mm-hmm. of cancerous, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, side effects from having that mixed residential and zoned. But, you know, it's it's this, so what ends up kind of happening is this this divide, right, of the five freeway and, and the Coronado Bridge you know, there's this barren land underneath underneath these overpasses. So, you know, in the 70s, you know, the community kept asking for a park. We want a park. We want a place where we can reside. Um, you know, and the government at, at first says, yeah, you know, we, we can give you the park. And then all of a sudden, you know, they the it kind of gets renamed once again, another treaty broken, you know, another, you know, false promise. Right. And they want to build a, uh, was it a, it was a highway patrol substation in that spot. So the community said, no, nah, we're done. We, you know, we, we asked for a park. We wanted a place that, you know, just necessities of life, if we think about it. And so they did was they took it over, you know, they took it over with the community themselves, you know, young, old, and he occupied this land and they created a park, which is kind of park now. And, you know, occupy this place until we're at least where the government said, okay, we're done. We'll move our substation. We're not going to build it here. You can have this space. So the community creates this, um, I like to call it, you know, it's a Sokolo. It's, it's, an, it's a place where I think not only, you know, Barrio Logan residents, or, you know, reside, but I think it's a calling place, right, for, for a lot of Mexican-Americans in San Diego. And, you know, they, what they did was they took these blades or these, these pillars that cut the community and they created, you know, these canvases, these outdoor murals of life, of Mexican, you know, Mexican-American life, uh, that brings a color, right? You know, because if you think about it, these overpasses are these bland, gray, muted colors that, that you know, that resemble, you know, a kind of, I would say, like, um, it's, a, it's, it's, you know, there's, there's symbols of trauma, right? Of cutting, you know, of, mm-hmm. you know, family members leaving, family members having to move, mm-hmm. of, you know, forward progress cutting through a community. And then now being now a pillar of the community, right? They took those pillars and they flipped it. They flipped the narrative and they created a space for many Mexican-Americans to come to. And I think that's what's the beauty about Chicano Park. And so a lot of lowriders, it's like you would, National City, the Highland was the middle connecting, you know, connecting avenue that connected Southern, you know, South Bay to Chicano Park. And a lot of times, a lot of these cruises would end or start in Chicano Park. And they would use Highland as the way to connecting to the to some of the southern communities of, of Southern Cal- or of San Diego, California, like San Isidro and Chula Vista. Mm-hmm. So it's this meeting place, right? It's where the you know our monarch butterflies come back to live, right? So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Alexis just said it. When you look at the map, um, you can see a beautiful area along the water, and that it's completely carved out by the five freeway, right? We have the 15 freeway coming in, as well as the Coronado Bridge. Okay. Um, for example, that would not happen in beach cities like Solana Beach, La Jolla, uh, Del Mar, right? Um, communities just north of that um, because of 
a lot of situations that we've been talking about around the history, right, of, of, of access. And I, and I think, too, is that we have to look at is, you know, when we talk about Coronado, it's, you know, it's a, it's a wealthy island, right? This mm-hmm. is where millionaires have their homes in Southern California. It's also, you know, the naval base. Mm-hmm. And you, prior to the the creation of, of the Coronado Bridge, it's like you, there was only two ways to get off the island, right? You take the ferry across into downtown or you have to take, you know, the Silver Strand and you have to go through Imperial Beach, which is a brown community. So it kind of comes and looks at a different way. It's, it's, you know, does the does the bridge represent a place of connecting two communities or is it a bridge that overpasses or goes past a community that many of these wealthy choose to look past, right? Or don't want to acknowledge. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really what the, the bridge to me represents is this affluent community that wants a little more convenience for themselves and while not looking at, and, and basically driving over a community they don't want to be a part of to get yes, to something. Yeah, and I would agree with that because as, um, Coronado Bridge, remember, used to uh, charge yes charge persons for crossing, um, and so they would actually <laughs> um, make quite a profit. Um, and as Alexis is talking about, that really is an exclusive community. Um, now they no longer do that, but I would completely agree with you. It is um, erasing um, and. Uh, displacing a population of people. Um, and that's why I wanted to talk to you about the lowrider culture that you're studying because <clears throat> it really is a reflection of Chicano culture and history in San Diego. Um, um, yeah, around yeah. Logan and, 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 and the significance and importance to that, um, like you're saying, it's part of your culture. Um, yeah, and I think that was the biggest thing for me. I think any grad student coming in and you're, and you're trying to find your voice and you're trying to find what interests you, right? I mean, I think that's the hardest thing. If we have to, you know, you're navigating grad school and it's like you have to write these papers. And, but you're like, I'm, if I'm spending all this time in research, what draws me to this research? And I think for me it was I, I started looking at low writing as something I liked in the beginning. It's something I do, right? I am a low writer. But I didn't realize what it does in society. So I started getting into these classes and I started looking at my my passion and my love at a different angle and a different mm-hmm. viewpoint of knowledge that I was gaining. And you start realizing like, no, there's a lot of, of nuance in this culture. And I think that's one thing is describing it, right? It's not a hobby. It's, it's a culture. Mm-hmm. And when you start looking at it as a culture, then you start realizing, well, what, you know, the the nuances and the intricacies in it, how does it evolve? Where does it come from? Mm-hmm. What is it doing in society? Mm-hmm. And I think that's where I started getting hooked and I started realizing it, you know, when I'm reading, you know, pieces like Stuart Hall or, or, you know, Trilo, and I started realizing, well, how's it all, what is it really doing? How's it pushing back against society? You know? And I think for me, that's where I started realizing I can, I can do something that I enjoy and love and you know, look at it from a philosophical level, from, uh, a different light and different avenue and in elevator, right? And it's not to say that low writing is an elevator to begin with. I think in our communities we look at it and we we hold it in a high esteem and high you know high regard. But it's branching that crossover, right? And in academics is saying like, hey, look at this culture. You guys are not noticing the the beauty in it and the power in it. And I think that's what kind of gets me going when I start looking at or writing about low writing. It's like. You know, so taking something I like and I love and, and, and giving it some volume, I think that's the biggest thing. Oh, yeah. When you presented in our history class, I was really, um, it really like turned a light bulb on in my head because the way you um, were able to share with us in class, um, that it's a way of life. Yeah. It, it is part of, it does not separate, right? from from you and your um, lived experience. And that's what's really exciting about, in my opinion, your scholarship, because you nailed it on the head. Um, that's what you are doing here, and that's what we're all doing, is building on these, on these cultural historians' work and showcasing in our own way, um, for example, why low rider culture 
um, is significant today. Um, you're able to contextualize it. And I'm really interested in how you're analyzing it. Um, so do you want to, do you want to yes. that a little more? Yes. I mean, I think for me it was, you know, one of my classes, it's like, you have to, one of the big pushbacks was, you know, when I was in one of my, my classes was, was dig deeper, right? Get past the, the color divide or the, the, you know, brown, white kind of pushback and go further. Like what, what is low riding doing? And, you know, and start looking at um, critique, right. Or society. And you start looking at how systems of power are created and then how low riding in general interacts with those systems of power. You know, what does it do? Is it, you know, when I say decolonizing space and time, well, how does it? And I think, you know, when you brought up the low and slow, like that's the performance, mm -hmm. that's the protest, mm -hmm. um, you know, so, you know, when, and, you know, it's, we live in that society, you know, when brown bodies interact in space and time, it creates a different uh, narrative for certain individuals. Um, and I think that's, that's the big thing, you know, and, and how does it do that? And then, you know, when you start looking at the canvas, when you, when you look at it, you know, and it is art, right? These cars and vehicles are pieces of art. So how does art critique society, mm -hmm. you know? And so when you look at, um, when I look at, you know, especially cultures or, you know, communities that don't have much, you know, funding or money, you start looking at agility and adaptability. And I think low riding in general just is a great example of, of overcoming one's um, opposition, right? You take, you know, mm -hmm. you have, you have an objective and it's how do you get there? Well, you know, being, being, you know, ingenuity, right. You know, start, tinkering start seeing different possibilities mm -hmm. and it's when you start looking at alternate possibilities or alternate realities for certain things then it creates a, a new kind of opportunity you know so like when low riding at first low and slow they used to put cement bricks in the back right mm -hmm. to drop the suspension they would cut coils right it was rudimentary how to get how to get the car lower and i mean i'm talking about this is in the 40s and 50s mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, you know, you start getting laws. Laws get passed and say, hey, you can't drive your car with the wheelbase under a certain level. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, like, well, well I'm a low rider. I'm still going to ride low. We got to figure out how to get past this, right? How to get past this ticketing, how to get past this police presence. And so, you know, these, these people that worked on the World War II bomber said, you know what? I think these, these hydraulic pumps off the World War II bombers that controlled their landing gear will raise and lower the vehicle. Right. You know, it's, so it's just looking at things that are and, and this is surplus. Right. This is trash because by the time the 50s and 60s, those are out of date. All those parts are just sitting in a junkyard. And they say, you know what, I think I can take this trash and create something new. And so you start seeing those possibilities. And in that, you know, that's the beauty kind of low riding. Right. It's creating something out of nothing or forgotten mm -hmm. things, I think, which is the biggest thing, you know, creating something out of something that's forgotten or overlooked. And I think for a lot of people of color, we tend to be overlooked in society. Mm -hmm. So I think that's just kind of a metaphor too in general is that we're always overcoming obstacles through our culture. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that's the biggest thing is like, you know, why is culture always the, the thing that gets, you know, policed so hardly, right. Whether, you know, whether it's the ghost dance that was seen as a threat, right. right. You know, we're talking about dancing, that's right. you know, you know, uh, break dancing in the, you know, mm -hmm. in, in New York at the time, right. Like mm -hmm. what, why are these elements of culture so uh, fearful for authority? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and even now we see it with you know taking away certain history out of textbooks or wanting to, right, for mm -hmm. certain communities in certain states, and because it shows and it paints a different history and light of America. You know, when I say America, I mean the United States, not the America, the Commons, but the United States, right? It shows a different light of it. And I think that's the biggest thing is when we're preserving culture or highlighting culture that's forgotten, mm -hmm. you start sh reshaping narratives. When I mean, you reshape narratives, is, is you create a, a new forward or a new you know progress. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something we share in common, Alexis, is I'm going to start with what you began with, which really is um, looking at brown bodies like, uh, you know, someone like myself who's Colombian and um, Latinx and yourself, Chicano. And, and the work that we're doing to really recast, right, um, public histories, um, really celebrating 
um, the agility, um, the craftsmanship, the skilled labor, the wisdom and magic of lowrider culture that, um, as you, as we can acknowledge, can be looked at in one very simple way. Um, but when you contextualize it, thank you, Alexis, and create <clears throat> avenues for us to analyze it, right, that it really widens our understanding of, of Southern California. And it widens our, our view of the freeways. It widens our view of the parks on Sundays, right? It, it expands our understanding of, of how art is criticizing and critiquing society and, and why certain people are overlooked. Um, Alexis, I had a moment on campus where um, a lot of my research is about um, the displacement of the brown body. Um, and I'm friends with many people on campus and all the staff. And I wanted to take a selfie with um, my friend Maria, who, who works in, um, on campus helping in the janitor department, right? And I, I wanted to take her selfie with her. And she looked at me and she's like, Eric, would you be embarrassed? And I said, oh, no, I wouldn't be embarrassed. But would you? Would you mind? And she said, no, not at all. But, in elect, but Alexis, in that moment, right, I acknowledged another brown human being who felt displaced. Um, even yeah, I mean, with the amount of, of hard work and skilled labor um, that she feels overlooked in ways. Yeah, I think in general, I think sometimes we, you know, coming from this background, a lot of, you know, especially people of color in the service industries, we get overlooked, right? We're invisible. We're, we even, it's weird, right? And even in the pandemic, right? When, when we start looking at who is essential and all of a sudden these bodies that we deemed to overlook are now essential, right? You know, whether it's, you know, the fast food workers who are predominantly people of color to, you know, the, you know, the farm workers that are picking our actual food and bringing our, you know, picking the food that can be sold in, in, in the grocery stores. It's like, all of a sudden now they're essential. Now you look at these bodies mm-hmm. and I think that's, a, you know, so for some people who have been invisible their whole life, it is a shock. Right. And I think too, for us, it's as we progress, you know, in, in academics and academia, we're traversing in a world that hasn't seen us, you know, or not as much of us. And it's can be a shock to the system. But I think also we, we look at it and we say, we still have to acknowledge our brothers and sisters. It's like, we don't go to act these. If my whole thing was for self-improvement and be like, I want to be a professor and I want to do this. I want to have this lifestyle. It's like, no, I mean, there's a lot of people that have contributed to my success or to my, you know, mm-hmm. to my success into the lot in life where I'm at now, you know, whether it's financial support from family and friends, you know, I mean, I think it's, that's the biggest thing I've learned now, right? When we're, we're navigating this PhD life is that it's not just mine, right? It's not my, just my accomplishment, solo my accomplishment. It's like, it's, you know, my brother helping me out, you know, buying me stuff when we're here and there. Cause you know how it is when we're, you know, in grad school or especially in the PhD mm-hmm. department, it's like, we're not the most wealthy people, right? We're, we're mm-hmm. kind of strapping it together and, and trying mm-hmm. to get to this goal that we're doing it for, especially for me, for the culture, right? I'm doing it for, for the Chicano, you know, for Chicano culture, for people of color that, you know, we're trying to tip the balances of, of diversity, right? In these, in these upward echelons of, of higher education. And it's like, you know, you do have all these different people helping you. And I think that's the big thing. It's like, you know, when you look at Maria, she's an integral part of this, you know, of this academia that we just don't give shine to, right? that we overlook or sometimes forget. And I think that's the biggest thing is like, for me, that's what um, I look at when, I, when I'm when i doing my writing or when I'm trying to do, like for my biggest thing is I'm always trying to incorporate mm-hmm. oral histories into my methodologies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because you can only contextualize so much from an outsider's point of view. And I think you need those voices of the community that was actually there, right? 
and especially of women of color. Mm-hmm. I think those are the voices that often right now are, are extremely overlooked and not giving their just praise, especially in low riding culture, right? We look at it as a, a strictly male dominated culture. And it's like, what if I told you there was like, you believe it was two or three all female rider, low rider clubs in San Diego. Mm-hmm. Right? And what power does that bring? You know, especially being a person of color to be a woman to take up space. Like what is that doing mm-hmm. in society? What is that showing? You know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a, that's a fight on multiple levels and multiple fronts that they're just by the act of pure, you know, cruising you know, on a Sunday afternoon, like, you know, what are they really doing? And I think that's the biggest thing we have to look at is, especially as academics of color is um, who we write for, uh, what we write for. And I think that's the big thing is, is keeping that in our voice is uh, not to forget where we come from and, and, and what inspires us. And I think that's the biggest things we, we can do. I mean, that's just something that, I think should be um, something we keep in the back of our mind every time we write a piece mm-hmm. or present somewhere. Exactly. Like I'm constantly, Alexis, checking myself like every 20 minutes. Um, and you said it like for academics like me and you, <clears throat> uh, brown bodies, black bodies, Asian bodies, bodies who are um, minoritized, we are very aware who is on our side and in our corner. And it's often women like Maria. Um, and, and that we, we need to acknowledge how much they participate in our culture, in our success on campus. And that for a lot of us, when we look in Maria, we see ourselves. And that, that, that we don't want to be overlooked and that we are not going to overlook those bodies on campus. Um, yeah, I think, I think for me, it's always, there you go. That's that pushback, right? Yeah. That's me pushing back going, these are the bodies that are in my corner and on my team. Yeah. Right? And I think, and I think for me, it's like, when I see, like, I always have a heart, like for me, my, my father was a, was a building maintenance. They call him building maintenance engineer, but basically, you know, he's a building maintenance uh, for the sheriff's department in, or in, in the county of San Diego. So when I go onto these campuses, I look at, you know, those, those individuals, like those building maintenance, I see my dad, right? And I see my father mm-hmm. working in these establishments, providing some, you know, providing uh, substance to his family or this. But, I, you know, I see that. I'm like, okay, that's, I'm not too far removed, per se, from that lifestyle and from that. And, I you know, that's where I start seeing, when you can start seeing your own self and your own, reflection in the people around you mm-hmm. and that's i think that's where you need to start being at when you when you start you know so it's like when you see maria you're like hey you know they may see like other professors or they see other people on students and they they never get you know they like i said they, students walk by them or professors or, or staff walk by them so when you sit there and you say hey and you take that time to engage with them it's you know it's a new feeling and it's also showing us like hey we're we're part of this community. You're, you know, you are us. We are gente, you know, that we're here. Yeah. So. And for a lot of us, Alexis, like myself, I'll, um, you know, we speak Spanish. Yeah. And so it's, it's empowering to have other people who value their culture, like Maria, who, who still are very in tune with her culture and that she's really not dispossessed in a lot of ways. Right. Um, and, and to bring back to that word joy, that she brings joy to the campus and work. And that's what kind of ties us back to the lowrider, that this is really about joy. And that many people wouldn't imagine, right, that a Chicana woman would want to lowride, right? Oh, but, yeah. But that's, that's her celebrating her culture and expressing uh, who she is in many, many ways. Um, yeah, you know, and, I, and that brings me to one of the oral histories I did. I, I did an oral history of Chris Cano, and, uh, Chris Cano, and she was uh, one of the founding members of a, a female low-riding club called Ladies Pride. Wow. Yeah, and just think about wow. the name, Ladies Pride, right? And so, and especially within low-riding culture, you have the plaque in the back of the car. This is, you know, and it's, so it says Ladies Pride. This is a ladies' car. And the power, right? The power to one, you know, in dominant cultures and, you know, that 
in a, in a society saying this because this was in late 70s, you know, saying one for some people, women didn't have vehicles because even vehicles, you know, to some extent, we see an upper mobility, but it's a sense of freedom. Right. Mm-hmm. But for for an individual, for for Chris to own, have her own low rider, occupy the street, organize. Right. To, to even have these clubs. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of organization that goes involved into these clubs. Um, they would do fundraisers like tot, you know, Toys for Tots. Mm-hmm. Um, one of their members became a detective, a female detective in San Diego PD. So it was kind of like the, these these women are strong ladies that need to get their right. Their it's like a network, shine. right? Like a network, right? Yeah, and they, and they need to get their shine and their obligation. Like so, when I because a lot of times when I get disheartened is like when I read a lot of this history that's written, it's like oh, you know, and there was female lowriders, but they just went and started families. And it's like, well, no, that's not the whole story, right? If you can devote chapters about other clubs and the history of lowriding, but you can only give two or three pages of a blurb about, you know, the female lowrider clubs, it's kind of like, well, where's the, where's the just shine or the just, you know, the justice in that? And I think that's the big thing. Like when I go in and I, and I start doing these oral histories for women, you know, these female lowriders, it's like, man, like, you, well, especially when you're doing oral histories, like you may want to go and just talk about lowriding, but you're getting so much rich content about what it's like to be, a Chicana growing, you know, that navigating this world in, you know, the 60s and 70s or 80s, depending on the time frame, what it was workplace, like she used to work for a cannery and she was just like, I couldn't move up. It was just, I couldn't get up anywhere. They always wanted me in this one. So you see, you start hearing the glass ceilings. You start hearing how proud she was when she was low riding. Like she would tell me how if she worked on a Friday night or Friday, it would take her two hours because she wanted to cruise to get to to her work. You know, mm-hmm. and, and how her car was an extension of herself. So it's kind of one of those things like, you know, when you saw her car, you saw her. So like having everything clean, presentable, crisp, you know, these are powerful statements. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. And um, for me, it's just fascinating because I'm I'm looking forward to the future of low riding, right? So yeah. like my nieces in San Diego, um, like if I could write them a letter, right, in five years, what what would I say, right? Um, what would I hope for them? Um, I, I and, think how, and how could they build on that and celebrate their lives um, in low rider culture in San Diego? You know, I, I think for me, you know, it's 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 to enjoy it, right? To get in there and see the history, be part of the history, be part of the change. Know that they're. I think that's. I think that's a misconception. So I think because a lot of these stories haven't been told about all you know these female lowrider clubs. So a lot of you know women that have wanted to be part of this culture, and it is a hard culture to break in sometimes. You know, I'm not going to lie. You know, we you see some of the murals, and they're not necessarily inviting for women, especially in the day and age that we are now. But that we need to change, and I think the big change is having that female presence there. So, you know, to hold accountable their brothers and say, hey, guys, you know, we need to be more inviting. But to occupy that space, too, is to say, hey, you know, hey, we love cars just like you guys and get out there and enjoy it. And I, and I see it. I, you know, I have one of my cousins. She has an Al Camino and she's out there. Um, I'm starting to see more women mm-hmm. low riders, which is great. You know, it, it shows that shot. Because it also, too, is because, like, you know, these passions aren't just relegated to to the boys and men, right? I mean, mm-hmm. exactly. Women, w- women enjoy cars too, and enjoy this culture too, and they have so much input to give on this culture. And I see it as a new, you know, progressing, right? I think you know, like culture in general, it evolves. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the next evolution for me, or I, I want to see it with low riding is seeing this dominant female presence in it. To see that it's all inclusive, to have more voices, and I mean, mm-hmm. if. If lowriders can go to Japan and have this great extension to Japan, right, where J- the Japanese communities out there are embracing Chicanx culture and lowriding, if lowriding can cross continents, you know, we, you know, we can have a space for our, for for you know female lowriders, and I, and I think that's the beauty, right, to see the different elements, to see the different styles they even bring to the cars, you know, different colors and different murals and different ways of seeing how low riding can be. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's exactly. It. I'm very fascinated in, 
in how you're uncovering the equity that is available to Chicanos and Chicanas and Mexican-American people, um, but that it, it's often um, siloed, right? Like, yeah. oh, it's just about, you know, it's just about the brothers. It's just about the, the guys, right? Or the cholos or these misconceptions, right? Of brown and, and Mexican and Latinx bodies. But I'm really glad that you're going to really build on this because I know from my lived experience in San Diego that there are so many women who participate in it and that no one has taken the time, as you've said, to to rewrite that history, to collect that history and to put it in a context um, so that more people, like you said, can go to the library and go, oh my gosh, no wonder I'm a low writer. I'm building on this, right? This is part of my culture. Yeah, um, I think the, part I think of my biggest, community and I should I should have pride. Yeah, and I think the biggest you know thing for us as academics is you know who and in, in who and where we write for and, and, and what you know what's our intentions. So for me, it's like, you know, when I write pieces, do I write it for the Ivy Tower or do I write it for the community I live in and serve? And I think that's the biggest thing for me is, is finding those accessible avenues to share my work, you know, mm-hmm. and show that, you know, I'm writing at this level as well. I'm writing in this academic level, but that it's for these communities and, and it's successful for these communities. Mm-hmm. So whether that's kind of thinking about, you know, do I write the piece in, you know, a different magazine? Or do I have to present it in a journal? You know, can I write a piece that say, and that's my next kind of thing is like, can I document Lowrider history and say, put it in a car magazine, right? Mm-hmm. So that different communities see our extension or our progress to, you know, to the automotive industry. Because it's kind of like, you know, when you see hydraulics, you know, hydraulic systems are now used in a lot of cars, right? Sports cars mm-hmm. use hydraulic systems. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, you know, where do they get that from? Oh, you know what? It's funny. It's, you know, it came out of the body. Right. And I think that's the biggest thing is you start looking at these little pieces that have been used in different avenues, but you got to give them their just shine. Right. And you have to give mm-hmm. them their, their honor that they deserve. And it's, and it's, and it comes to us like as academics, it's like, where do I present work? And I think that's the biggest thing, right. You know, where, where do I present it and whom do I present it for? Yeah. I mean, I can already see it, Alexis, as your, um, building on a dissertation for you, right? Um, how would you apply like a digital humanities, right? An Omega exhibit, right? How could yeah. you um, incorporate your oral history into a digital platform, right? Where, because so yeah. much of Lowrider is very visual and artistic. Um, and so I can definitely see how you're you're cooking on all cylinders, right? Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I had that experience. Want, last. Yeah, you want your scholarship to shine. And, yeah. um, you know, I definitely had a last or one of our last kind of we had a group project and we did that. And like, and I said to myself, wrote about low writing. And I said, hey, guy, you know, it's my group. And I just said, you know, it's such a visual, you know, culture. So writing a paper in black and white does not give it justice. And that's when we, you know, as a group, we decided to create kind of like a, a mock, uh, or I, I want to say mock. It's it's a it's a kind of homage to Low Rider magazine, and we created our own magazine, right? A critique issue, and we started to make a magazine that you know that looked at how Low Rider critique society and how it, you know, how it is, you know, an element for for critique, mm-hmm. but doing it in a, in a medium that Low Riders would know. Like, you know, when you saw that Lowrider magazine on the shelf, you'd see that, you know that. And so one of the things, too, I'm, I'm kind of grasping is I want to do, you know, these oral histories, mm-hmm. but I also want to create an element. You know, we live in a day and age where social media is, is so relevant, right? It's how we engage and interact with people. So it's creating kind of like an online, you know, platform where we have the women lowriders you know, shot how they want to be shot, right? Taking advantage of how they want to be presented with their with their cars, with links to their oral histories, right? So I think that's for me that 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 stance, right? Where because I think so many times in low riding is you know we see the low rider model and it's kind of men telling you how women should interact with cars. And I think it's a time where we start realizing you know women have a voice and 
they can show us how they want to be with their with their vehicles. And I think that's a powerful statement, and especially if you can link that to the oral histories. Um, so I think that's something I'm, I'm kind of delving with and, and seeing what I can do with. It's that is really job. exciting. That is really exciting because I could see you also collaborating with these women so that um, let's say you would curate a digital humanities archive, right? Um, imagine collaborating with these women on primary sources, right? Secondary oh, yeah. sources, like you saying, said being able to share clips of oral histories. I can see it already, Alexis. Um, I think it's a really exciting project. Um, and I celebrate all of the work that you've accomplished. You've worked really hard. And um, I do want to have a follow-up on this. Um, but I, I do want to, I know we're kind of getting towards an hour. So I wanted to thank you, Alexis. Is there anything else that you're working on that you would like to talk about? Um, yeah, you know, actually, I mean, just real quick, and I know we repressed for time. I think um, one thing we, I've kind of started with my brother is a nonprofit that we're looking to start is that um, during this COVID time, right? So this during this time of pandemic, access to the arts, right, have become very strained. And so my brother is actually, you know, with his his abilities, he's purchased pieces of art from um, um, Simone Silva, which is a, uh, an artist here in, in uh, California. In that we kind of want to create these mobile art exhibits for the vulnerable communities to visit because if accessibility to museums are becoming stressed right although they're starting to create digital platforms we're assuming communities of, you know communities that are are strapped for cash have access to internet and to all these you know i i you know to these uh techno technology we, we're assuming that and that's not the case sometimes so I think is is creating this high level of art being shown in some of these communities that don't have access to to it. I think it's something that me and my brother have been kind of pitching back and forth and and trying to get and uh, you know and purchasing art as well um, from these up and coming artists and established artists, so we can have kind of a mobile gallery for um, for vulnerable communities to come and visit. That is really really cool. I just googled Simon Silva because I did not know him, um, and he's from Mexicali. So kind of a border town, right? In San Diego. Yeah. yeah. And so you know, name or is there, is there something you're cooking on or can we follow you somewhere or not, not yet? I mean, it's, it's in the kind of the infancy phases, you know, we purchased some art that we want to, you know, to um, display, you know, we have one, one's actually a low rider piece. It's a, a Batman and Robin um, piece that's in a, I believe it's 1960s uh, Impala, but, um, you know, one thing we're trying to get was, especially with CGU being open now, is I think I'm trying to first see if we can start um, displaying them here at the university. That's kind of our next step. Most definitely. Um, for some of our, mm -hmm. Just to have it around um, and seeing that. And then um, the next is is kind of getting getting going on with the nonprofit and writing our statements and, and stuff. Because I think the biggest thing right now is culture and the arts, you know, create an outlet and uh, the ability to, you know, maneuver in, in some, some of these obstacles and times, right. That gives us that hope. And, and I think that's the biggest thing is that we need to foster the arts. We need to foster definitely for me, I found in cultural studies, right. And when I pivoted from sociology to cultural studies and mm -hmm. you start seeing how culture helps, you know, a lot of oppressed societies. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, I think, you know, sharing art is a big thing um creating i think fostering creativity especially within the youth and creativity can be used not only in art but you know in sciences math you still need to have that creative aspect when you're when you're delving in those subjects and i think that's the biggest thing is how do you create that or foster um that mindset no oh, most definitely i really like that because that's that is what really low right culture is about um right creativity art fostering, nurturing, um, right? Um, caring for, yeah. celebrating, um, being low and slow. Um, you know, and it's it's that perfect segue, right? Between art and uh, mm -hmm. engineering, right? You know, we look at automotives, 
and you know it, it's a lot of engineering that goes on there so it's, you know it's the combination of art and science i think is is kind of what i think when i look at low riding um you know it's that that perfect combination well thank you so much alexis um you left us with so many questions and ideas uh it's going to be a really fantastic fall i look forward to seeing you on campus from studio b3 at claremont graduate university this is latinx in the inland empire